Wisdom. Just out of high school when I had a very lonely summer living with my grandmother and working on a construction crew, I spent a lot of time in the scriptures and found that in Ecclesiastes, as depressing as the book is, that at the end, the wisest man in the world said, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And then also in Proverbs, uh, there's a lot about wisdom and it basically says keeping God first is the beginning of wisdom. As we look into James, we're going to see this morning that James identifies two kinds of wisdom, godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And godly wisdom, once again, starts with putting God first in all your ways. I found through my studies a life verse early on that has been a central verse in my life, which is in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll guide your path. Great to see all of you here this morning. If you're a guest, we're delighted that you're here. If you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we're, we're glad that you've uh, chosen that to join us this morning. And as Brad mentioned, we're in this part of James where we're going to talk about wisdom. We're in this study called Relevant Faith, which is a study of this very awesome practical book of James. And so this morning we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 13 in a minute or two if you want to just kind of mark that in your Bible or your phone or, or your tablet, whatever you've got. The NIV translation uses the word wisdom or wise over 400 times. 400 times. That's a lot of references, which ought to clue us into the importance of wisdom in Scripture. Now, wisdom is not synonymous with knowledge, although it often gets used that way. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts and information. Wisdom is the ability to take what we know and apply it properly to make important decisions. Just because a person is highly educated does not make that person wise. Wisdom, wisdom is more often like what we call horse sense or common sense. And here's the thing, common sense is anything but common. And it's been noted that horse sense is the thing a horse has which keeps it from betting on people. So when we look at horse sense, when we look at common sense, that's more clued into the concept of wisdom in Scripture. I'm not sure we've had a president before or since with as much common sense as Abraham Lincoln. It was often inherent in his homespun humor, and he used it to diffuse sometimes, well, tough situations. Once during his presidency, a ranking official at the post office died, and the following day, an impertinent job seeker showed up at the White House and waylaid the president there. He said, Mr. President, did you know that the chief postal inspector just died? Can I take his place? Well, Lincoln said, it's all right with me if it's all right with the undertaker. <laughs> you have to think about that one for just a minute, don't you? Instead of a flat no, instead of offending the person, the president used this great bit of wisdom to diffuse an uncomfortable moment. Not always was his wisdom visible in his humor. On one occasion, there, were, there was a delegation of ministers that approached the president at the White House, and they said, we will prevail because God is on our side. 
Gentlemen, Lincoln re replied, the question should always be, are we on his side? It's a wise answer to the question. And it strikes at the heart of our text this morning. James reminds us that there is more than one kind of wisdom and we need to act like we've got some sense, some common sense, some godly sense when it comes to the matter of wisdom. So let's just take the text as it appears and explore it for just a few minutes this morning. And the first thing we see is James talking about demonstrated wisdom. In verse 13 we read, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now James is really good about using rhetorical questions. Who is wise and understanding, he asks. Why, the person who demonstrates that wisdom and understanding in the way he or she lives. That's who. You don't really need an answer. You already know who the wise are. James returns to this theme over and over again, that we need to put our wisdom into action, that we need to put our faith into action. Reduced actions only point to a reduced faith. Now, many of the products that we buy today advertise reduced calories or reduced fat. Hellman's Light Mayo is advertised as half the fat, half the calories, and it's made with cage-free eggs. Butterball Deli Turkey has 50% less sodium. Tropicana orange juice can be had with 50% less sugar. It's an effort to get us to be healthier. Back in the 1920s, my grandpa Ellsworth started a dairy business. Milk from the local dairy farmers was homogenized, pasteurized, and bottled for retail sale. When I was a kid, you couldn't sell 2% milk. Everybody used whole milk at that time. 2% milk was called Blue John because it was weaker in cream. And when you looked around the edges, it had sort of a bluish cast to it. They gave it back to the farmers who fed it to their hogs. By the way, when you go to buy 2% milk at the uh, grocery store, what color cap does it have on it? Blue, yeah. It ties it all into to the past. Uh, everyone back then used the heavy stuff. You, you know the rich milk and cream mixture today that we call half and half? When I was a kid, it was called cereal milk. <laughs> because that's what people put on their cornflakes to give it some zippity-doo-dah, half and half. You know, we look at that and think, oh my goodness. Sometimes people can't even drink 2%. Two, two they settle for 1% or they settle for skim milk because the other is too heavy for them. Now, I understand the reasons why we're trying to eat healthier and be healthier. But what's good for the physical body certainly is detrimental to our spiritual health. When it comes to wisdom, James isn't into reducing anything. You see, the more our faith and wisdom are put into action, the healthier our spiritual life is. James emphasizes this so much and so often in this letter that he awesome, uh, often gets, well, accused of being in conflict with Paul's writings. You can read James and you can wonder if he's contradicting Paul about salvation through grace by faith. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul and James are not in conflict. Both would agree with one another, but we need to understand the context of their writings in the first place, James' letter predates much of Paul's writing. James is not addressing the issue of salvation as Paul so often does. James isn't suggesting that we are saved by these deeds that are prompted by wisdom. 
He's suggesting that our deeds of wisdom serve as a confirmation of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul writes about us being justified before God by grace through faith. God knows our heart. God can see into our minds and our lives. He understands us. He doesn't need to see our actions to know what we believe. But James is writing about being justified before humanity. I can't see inside your heart, folks. You can't see inside mine. You don't know what I really believe deep down inside. You can only judge by what you see in my actions. I can only judge by what I see in your actions this morning. Paul often addresses the pre-conversion state of humanity. James is writing to Christians, the post-conversion state. Paul is talking about a wise faith that saves. James is talking about a wise faith that obeys. Both are right. Each is vital to our spiritual lives. We're not good enough, but God is. Ah, but on the other hand, for people to see God's goodness in his people, his people need to live good lives. You understand how they partner together? Thus, we demonstrate our relationship with the Lord by, as James writes, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Make sense? David Starr Jordan said, wisdom is knowing what to do next, skill is knowing how to do it, and virtue is doing it. Last week we talked about the fact that the right words are always important. But James reminds us that the wise words are not, well, they're not always enough. It takes action to put our wisdom into practice. The story is told of a frontier congregation who had gathered at the church building in the center of the small community to pray for one of the families whose homestead had been destroyed by a twister on the prairie. One lady arrived just a little bit late and slipped in quietly to one of the back pews. One of the more pious and smug ladies turned around and glared at her and then said in a rather snarky voice, is your husband not coming tonight to pray? To which the lady looked down and she simply said, no, he can't come tonight, but he sent his prayers in the wagon. And outside, inside the wagon was food, clothing, materials, gifts to give to the person, the family, who had lost their home on the prairie. Now, I'm not taking anything away from prayer. There is a time to pray, an important time to pray. We ought to pray when kinds of things like that happen. But there's also a time for wise action. And God calls us to put our wisdom into action so that the rest of the world can see the goodness of God in us. And you say, well, how do I know what's wise and what isn't? When I hear conflicting statements and themes on wisdom, both can't be right, can they? Of course not. When two conflicting statements are there, they both can't be right. Now, they can both be wrong, but they both can't be right. So what is the right wisdom? What is the true wisdom? Well, from here on out, James talks about both kinds of wisdom. And the first one he talks about is imposter wisdom. And he pulls us in in verse 14 with these words. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny its truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. 
James describes actions and attitudes that point to an earthly, unspiritual wisdom, which in reality, folks, is no wisdom at all. James is just drawing a contrast. You got earthly wisdom, you got godly wisdom. But really, this wisdom that he's talking about here isn't wise at all. And he focuses on two green-eyed monsters that are kissing cousins. Where you find one, you'll always find the other. Envy and self-centered ambition. Envy is the resentful desire for something possessed by another without being limited to material things. That's envy. Envy is insidious. It is underhanded. It is manipulative. Envy is the leader. Selfish ambition is its partner in crime. Notice what the wise King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 4. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success by their envy of their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like a chasing after the wind. Envy for what others have that we do not have breeds actions that once again run contrary to God's word. When we watch other people prosper and for all of our efforts, we just can't seem to get ahead. We oftentimes stoop to attitudes that reduce then to actions that will ruin our hearts. And and Solomon says that's like chasing the wind. What a futile effort. How can you chase the wind? You can't catch it. You can't bottle it. You can't market it. Chasing the wind is is a wasted effort. Selfish ambitions, I've seen separate more families through the years than any other, nearly any other cause. Siblings have become estranged because of, well, sometimes inheritance. One is resentful because of what mom and dad did or didn't leave, and then that leads to divisions in the family. Envy leads to greed. Greed leads to dubious attitudes. Dubious attitudes lead to deceitful actions, and deceitful actions lead to pain, grudges, and forgiveness issues. And I've seen families divided that never did come back. They never could recover from the hurt and the mistrust that all started with envy and selfish ambition. And and folks... Really, why do we obsess over the things that we cannot keep anyway? Are are we willing to destroy relationships that can last beyond our lifetimes for those things that break or wear out or become outdated before we even get them paid off? Envy and selfish ambition are like secret sins. They're internal. We can mask them with an outward smile and a nod of our head but be seething on the inside all the time. And there's something insidious about a sin that is mental and therefore invisible to everybody else. It lays the groundwork for all kinds of dastardly deeds. James warns that if we carry around old grudges or we struggle to forgive or we're intent on satisfying our envious whims, then we are not wise in the eyes of God. Sure, that may be the way the world says we we get ahead. The world sometimes says, hey, don't let anybody stand in your way. You get to the top. You deserve it. You need to be king of the mountain. And, and let the, well, hurt and pain and people fall as it, as it happens. You just get there. But that's not true wisdom. God calls that foolishness, a chasing after the wind. It's been said wisdom ceases to be wisdom when it becomes too proud to weep too grave to laugh, and too selfish to seek others first. James then makes this powerful assessment. Envious and selfish people will stop at nothing. 
And when you think that it is uh, about those motives behind crimes and criminal activity, aren't they always envy and selfish ambition? Make sure that the wisdom that guides your life is not an imposter wisdom because an imposter wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, of the devil is no wisdom at all. So what is genuine wisdom? Well, James doesn't leave us hanging. He goes on to, to tell us about that. And once again, wise behavior patterns don't require chapter after chapter. If you want to know what wisdom is, it, it's not like you have to spend weeks, months, years of your life delving into all the depths of the Scripture. You have to do chapter after chapter after chapter. No, no, no. I'm telling you, if you can just start practicing these two verses, you'll have a good handle on wisdom. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's really the stuff that we have at our fingertips that we so often overlook that will help us the most. As a matter of fact, if our culture could just take these two, these two verses, not two chapters, two verses, it'd transform who we are as a culture. James 3, 17 and 18, listen. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, God's wisdom, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Boy, there's a lot, there's a lot of good stuff there to unpack. First is this word pure. It means moral blamelessness. Not sinless. There's not a soul among us that's sinless. But moral blamelessness. In other words, your behavior is so consistent so non-hypocritical that no one can point at you and say, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to have any part of it. Your life and my life needs to be pure, blameless in our culture so that when, the, when, when our culture sees us, they see a genuine picture of Jesus Christ, not a reason to run away from him. That's a big start right there to wisdom. Being blameless in our culture. The next three, peace-loving, considerate, and submissive, stand as direct opposites of the unwise trio of envy, selfish, and ambitious. Peace-loving in this context carries the idea of creating a right relationship with other people and a right relationship with the Father. In contrast, the lack of humility destroys our relationship with others and a relationship with God. And this peace-loving spirit that he's talking about here grows out of being considerate and being submissive. These are two really important words. The word considerate here means a willingness to yield to the needs of others. In other words, when you're considerate, you're going to put the needs of others before you. You're going to think before you speak. And the word submissive here means to show deference to others in matters of opinion. In other words, when you're having a discussion and somebody wants to talk, let them talk. You, you show deference to them. Let them go first. Let them speak their opinions. Don't, don't you know, uh, criticize their opinions. Showing a sense of difference. Have, have, you, have you stopped to think how much more peaceful our culture and society would be if our culture practiced just this part of James? Just these two verses. We're living in a day and time now when people don't want to listen to anything they disagree with. They're rude, they're harsh, they're crass, and you can shout somebody down because they're saying something you disagree with. And I don't care what side of it it is, we've come to become belligerent with this. But what if we practice being considerate? What if we practice being submissive? What if we deferred to somebody and said, you go ahead, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to learn why you believe what you believe. How great 
our culture could be if we return to these simple principles of wise actions. So think before you speak. Defer to somebody else. Let them speak before you speak. Learn to listen and be considerate. Don't say something that you haven't thought of yet. After a few years of marriage, a wife got down her wedding dress and tried it on, and as she feared, it didn't fit anymore, and she began to cry. Her husband came in, found her crying, and said, oh, what, what, what's the matter, honey? And she says, my wedding dress won't fit anymore. He said, oh, don't, don't, don't cry. We'll buy you a bigger one. <laughs> the lack of consideration there did not make for a peace-loving situation, I can tell you that. Think before you speak. Be considerate of others. Now, when I say show deference to others' opinions, hear me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about compromising your values. I'm not talking about compromising biblical truths. But don't always insist on having your own way. When you show deference, it may just create a peaceful environment where you can learn and listen and grow together. That's wisdom at work. Mercy and good fruit that he talks about here is when Christianity acts in a merciful way that produces good fruit in the lives of other people. Now, Christianity elevated the, the concept of, of mercy. Uh, in, in the Greek uh, history, mercy was, was coming alongside of somebody who had experienced tough times because of no, uh, no fault of their own. A disaster happens, it's out of your hands. Christianity raised that a notch. Christianity took the concept of mercy and said, you come along somebody who's hurting even if they made a decision that caused the pain. Now, again, this word is not talking about enabling someone to continue in sin or helping a person perpetuate an addiction or a problem. This is, to become, this is about coming alongside of somebody who's hurting, a broken person, even if they've made a mistake that caused the mess. And who among us hasn't been there? That we've made a choice, that we've made a mistake, that we've made a decision that caused a mess. And when, you, when you're in a mess, who do you need? You need wise brothers and sisters in the Lord who come alongside of you and say, tough stuff you're going through. I'm here to help if I can. That kind of help produces good fruit. And then he says impartial and sincere. James talked about being impartial and treating others equally throughout this little letter. But this word is a bit deeper. It means being undivided, unwavering. That you do not hesitate or vacillate in your faith. That you can be counted on. Sincere, as you might guess, means exactly that. Genuine, not play acting. Not play acting. When I watch a good movie... I'm always curious about the actors and the actresses in the movie, whether what they're like as real people. You know, is that person really as wholesome as the part they're playing? Uh, or, or is that villain that's playing, you know, a villain like Darth Vader, okay? Is the, is the actor that's playing Darth Vader really as villainous as the character he's portraying? Or, or, or would he make a good friend, a good neighbor? Could you go out to have a, a, a cup of coffee or a Coke with, this, uh, with the guy that plays Darth Vader? You see, what you see on the screen is their acting. It's not really the real person, I don't think. What the world does not want to see when they look at us is acting. They want to see sincerity. 
they, they, they want to see who you really are. They don't want to screen. They don't want to mask. They don't want to show. They want to see who you genuinely are, who I gen, genuinely am. Because when they can see us in our sincerity, not play acting, then they will know who Jesus Christ really is. A Christian should live in such a manner that we are not viewed as actors in the faith, but sincere participants in the faith. Now, when we can put all these pieces together and live like verses 17 and 18 suggest, then we're walking in wisdom. Not imposter wisdom, but heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom. And when you walk in God's wisdom as opposed to the imposter's wisdom, you'll be able to lead people to victorious lives in Jesus Christ. If you'll stay the course. There is a path. Wisdom has a path. If you'll stay on the path and not get detoured, not get sidetracked, if you'll stay on wisdom's path, you'll make it home and you'll help other people to make it home as well. And there'll be victory in the end. 25 years ago, Mike Del Convo participated in the NCAA Cross Country Championship, which was held at the Victoria Country Club in Riverside, California. There were 128 runners. It was a 10,000-meter course, and about halfway through the course, some of the runners got a little bit mixed up and thought that the course jotted off to the, to the side. Mike stayed on course, started waving to other runners to follow him because he knew what the course was supposed to be. Most of them laughed at him and followed the other crowd, which was sort of a shortcut. 123 out of the 128 took the shortcut and were disqualified, technically. There were only four that followed Mike. There were five that completed the course as it was supposed to be. Now, there's a lesson in there for us. Be careful who you follow. Make sure you know the right path, that you stay on the path, that your directions are secure and firm because... The majority isn't always right. The, the, the crowd doesn't always know which way to go. Following the crowd won't get you where you need to be. I like what Yogi Berra said, don't always follow the crowd. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> He's right. Stay the course. Even when the majority veers off in another direction. You set the pace and head for the finish line, no matter where the crowd happens to be. That's wisdom. And it will give you peace. And it will ultimately get you home. And the only way to have that kind of wisdom is to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.